Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Kayla Mason. And my name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. You said that pretty quickly. I couldn't interrupt you. I did it on purpose. And we have a great episode for you today. Um, we've been releasing episodes, multiple episodes. We've been getting crazy this Throughout week. this whole week to celebrate our 100th episode. This is number four. This is number four. Yep, this is our fourth episode released this week. And today we're talking with Scott Belsky. He is the chief product officer at Adobe and the founder of Behance. Um, he's an investor. And he recently authored a book that just came out called The, the Messy Middle. Middle. Now, before we get into that, we just want to remind you we released a few other episodes this week. Um, we talked with uh, my dad, Dwight Mason. Dwight Mason. Um, we released an episode about the hundred or not the hundred things we learned, but some of that the would things, be intense. That would be intense. Some of the things we learned from our first one hundred episodes. Then we talked about what we learned at Orange Tour, and then today we are talking with Scott. If you missed our resource of the week earlier this week, it is the book Irresistible by Andy, Andy Stanley. Stanley. We highly please recommend go grab it. a copy of that bad boy. And we are also in Atlanta today for the Catalyst Conference today and tomorrow. So if you're getting this ATL, episode baby. the day of the release, let us know. Reach out to us. We would love to maybe grab lunch or dinner or coffee or whatever. We like maybe. coffee. I like coffee. So reach out to us and let us know. Now, as we mentioned earlier, today we are talking with Scott, and we are talking with him about his book, The Messy Middle, which is really the part that Nobody talks Nobody about Nobody wants lots to admit of people, it. Lots of people talk about starting things. They want the glory of it. And they talk about finishing things. But nobody talks about what comes the grind, between. the process, the middle. And so we're going to dig in deep with that, with our conversation with Scott Belsky right now. Well, Scott, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, you recently authored a book um, called The Messy Middle, and I absolutely love the whole concept and everything behind it. What made you want to write this book? Well, I, um, I've had a, uh, a pretty volatile journey myself over the last uh, 10 to 15 years um, as an entrepreneur of a bootstrapped company for five years, always trying to make sure we make payroll to a venture-backed company for about two years, trying to make sure that we had the growth and velocity to have a, uh, have a good journey for ourselves and also a good return for our investors. And then we were acquired by Adobe in 2012, and I had um, a tenure there where I was integrating the company, dealing with the uh, challenges of a big company and, and, uh, and all that comes along with that. Um, over the years, I've been an investor to over 100 different startups, and uh, and on whether it's advisory roles, boards, or just helping them with products, um, I have also witnessed uh, the amazing amount of volatility that um, startups go through and how much of their journey ultimately comes down to sticking together long enough to figure it out and optimizing everything that works. Mm -hmm. And so looking back in all these experiences, um, I just felt like there's just so much talk about the starts and finishes of things and very little discussion of what actually happens in what I like to call the messy middle. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was the that was the impetus was to just record a lot of the insights 
that not only I have learned, but also um, those that I've observed from those that I've worked with and, uh, and try to share them. So everyone can develop some muscle memory for how to uh, navigate their messy middle and whatever their venture or bold creative project is. What would you say are some of the unique challenges that you find happen in the middle as opposed to like the start and the finish of a project? Well, I think where the start is glamorous and, you know, it's easy to, easy. I mean, it's not easy, but it's, it's, uh, it, uh, it's why it's, it's commonly done to quit a job and start something because of this bold vision you have for the long term or, um, or to join a team or company because of this long term objective. Uh, and then, of course, reality hits you and you realize that there's no end in sight. You're in this um, abyss of anonymity, uncertainty, fear, self-doubt, and sometimes just boredom and monotony. Um, and uh, so it's just it's a lonely place to be. And frankly, no one really talks about talks about it because it's there's nothing really exciting to talk about there. Um, and so I think that that's like kind of one kind of big hole in the in the equation. And then um, and then what does it take to just kind of keep going and keep every little thing that every little peak making it a little incrementally higher? And um, and I and 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 then the finish, of course, is also a very quick thing. Um, it typically happens when you least expect it. Um, there are some things that I talk about in the book around the final mile and not screwing it up, but. Um, Again, like start and finishes are more moments in time. Um, the messy middle is really where the battle is lost or won. And, um, and it's just uh, some of it's not sexy stuff, yet it's crucially important. Mm -hmm. And I just think more conversations need to happen around it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the book talks about two big concepts, enduring the lows and optimizing the highs. And so what, what I wanted to ask is, can you just give us one or two things, um, one or two ways that we can endure the lows, and then one or two things of how we can optimize um, those highs? Sure. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's hard to, uh, hard to always, <coughs> excuse me, hard to always pick from so many different sure. things. But yeah. a couple, you know, I'll share a couple, a couple thoughts, you know, I, I kick off the, the, the section of the book with talking about short-circuiting your reward system. And with the realization that we all are um, we all are governed by a very short term reward system from birth. I mean, we're 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 looking for the check on the test, the grade in the course. Um, we're looking to uh, to to have these constant sort of flows of of um, of endorphins, and you know, and, and 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 knowing that we're on the right track. And then, of course, when you pursue a bold creative project or something that's really long term. Um, you may not have any audience or customers or revenue or anything telling you you're on the right track for years. And I think it's too ambitious and uh, to, to think that we can be governed and, and rewarded or incentivized to keep working by this kind of long-term hope or what we might want to achieve in five years or whatever. Um, instead, we actually have to short-circuit our reward system to keep those short-term rewards there um, in a synthetic form. And so in the book, I talk about some of the kind of tricks and hacks that teams do. I share a story of my own team, um, a couple stories, you know, one, which is, uh, which is um, we, used, we used to type in Behance into Google, which was a made up word. And it would always say, do you mean enhance? Do you mean enhance? 
And so we said, hey, you know, forget revenue and everything else. Maybe someday we just won't be a mistake in Google. And it felt like a near, like a more close-term achievable thing because every time someone put a portfolio up on Behance, which is a big online network of creative portfolios, um, that SEO would increase the likelihood of Google recognizing us as a legitimate website. You know, every time we posted a blog post, anything we did um, could bring us incrementally closer, and we could actually see the the increase in search rankings. You know, every day in some ways, um, and then eventually we kind of typed it in, and it was just like there, and uh, it was just this kind of near term uh, achievement, even though it, of course, didn't mean anything for the hopes of the business necessarily. <laughs> So, and I kid you not, Beyonce became popular like six months later and we lost it again for a little while. So, um, and then, uh, you know, and also like I, the team was motivated by all sorts of little, little bets we would make about, you know, when we would achieve this, when we would achieve that. And there were all these like little near term milestones again, that didn't really mean much in the bigger picture, but just kept us going. Um, so I think that's one thing as you lead your team or your, even yourself through the anguish and the unknown of the volatility of the early stages of the messy middle. Um, I'll talk about a bunch of other things about how to make sure you always lead your team with energy, how you always um, create this narrative for your team so that they know where they're going. You know, navigating and enduring the messy middle is like driving in a car for like four days straight with the black with the windows blacked out you can't see where you are you don't know what you're passing you don't know the kind of milestones you're achieving you just need to be narrated through the journey and so if the driver kept turning around saying hey hey you know we just crossed state lines you know hey we just did this we just did that it's much more comforting in an otherwise um very daunting and uh and hard to understand journey and so i talk about how Great leaders of startups are constantly kind of narrating um, the the journey for their team, and so in some ways, it's a form of merchandising. You just have to kind of, you know, walk people through it. So um, those are just a couple. Obviously, a ton more, but um, it's it's you know, endurance is tough, and it's, it takes a lot of work. Oh yeah, I'm just curious. You know, I'm just thinking. Uh, you know, in the middle, do you think that there's a difference between the challenges that the leader faces and that the team faces? And if so, um, what would you say is the difference? For sure. It's a good question. I do think the leader carries an extra burden because because she or he is struggling in the same way as a team, yet also bears the responsibility of being the steward of perspective, mm-hmm. of um, you know, prompting the uh, the questions that promote some sense of clarity for the team. Um, that when people start to lose hope, you know, and wonder should we quit or not, mm-hmm. um, you as a leader kind of have to have a bias towards we're going to keep with it, um, even when you have the same degree of self doubt as your team. Um, you also have to uh, be the one that um, that. Uh, breaks the whole journey down into chapters. You know, I talk in the, in the book about um, Ben Silverman, the founder and CEO of Pinterest, who really broke the journey down of Pinterest down into discrete chapters that the whole team could rally around and understand. It's so easy uh, for a new company to just tackle every, gra- every opportunity at once. And, and um, you know, and teams ultimately need to be led through one thing at a time, or at least one thing has to be the center of gravity at the time at a time. 
in Pinterest example, it was like, you know, this is the year of, of going global and internationalizing our product. And then the next year it was like, this is the year of monetization. Let's figure out how to make money. And, um, and it's just important. It's an extra burden though. Whereas as a team, you know, you're able to follow. And as long as you're narrated through the process enough, as long as you're, you have the short-term rewards when you need them, you know, it's a little easier to keep the train on the track, so to speak. So just speaking of being a leader um, and, and, and juggling all those things and, and working through those things, um, you're a guy who has lots of projects, lots of things going on pretty much all at once and all the time. Um, what, what helps you to accomplish all those projects and be able to prioritize and be able to keep things on track? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I don't know it's a good thing that I have so much going on at once <laughs> and I oftentimes uh, ask myself this question. So, uh, let me caveat my answer with that. Um, but I, you know, part of, part of my, my effort to challenge and grow myself is to be able to compartmentalize uh, and and be present in many different circumstances throughout my day or throughout my week, um, and also really keep my learning curve as steep as humanly possible. You know, one kind of thing I learned the hard way because I did take a break in my career between um, being a traditional venture capitalist after my whole entrepreneurial and first executive experience at Adobe. And then, um, and before I jumped into a job more recently back as chief product officer at Adobe, I took some time off and I said to myself, oh, this is great. You know, I'll be able to do a little less. I'll be able to focus just on writing this book and advising some companies and, and investing, that sort of thing. And what I found was that I was easily able to fill up my schedule and be busy, but I didn't feel fully utilized. And it was the first time in my life where I noticed the difference because I actually always thought, that being busy and being utilized were the same things. Yet what I found was that um, I didn't feel like I was really, my skills were being pushed to the limits. I didn't feel like I was ending the day being like, wow, like I barely made it. And what did I learn? How could I be better and more efficient? And I missed it, um, strangely enough. And so, uh, so that was like a lesson for me in terms of, I want to be continually challenged. I want to be, um, doing multiple things at once. And I think some people are single threaded in some ways. They can do one thing extraordinarily well, frankly, probably better than I do any of the things that I do. Um, and then some people are very multi-threaded where they can and want to do many things at once. And they like the kind of crossover between things and how it all kind of mixes together and, you know, everything um, somehow like connects, except you don't necessarily get to do one thing extraordinarily, extraordinarily well. Um, and I think that that's, you know, let's be honest. I think that that's, I think that's where I, where I land. Um, I try to do everything as well as I can, but um, I think to me, it comes down to being, you know, feeling utilized, being challenged to compartmentalize and, uh, and keeping the learning curve steep. So Scott, you've been kind of in, in multiple different types of situations, um, somewhere, you know, you're the VP or you're, you're whatever, you're more on the business end and making sure that, that everything's kind of rolling and doing what it's supposed to be. And then other times where you're able to, I don't, for lack of a better phrase or, or a word, you're more on the creative side where you're able to dream and, and, and kind of flex that muscle. What's the difference in, in skill set 
you know, required for each of those roles? And, and how have you developed that? Well, I think uh, in much of the stuff that we're talking about, um, you learn through experiential education. Um, you just learn by being in the thick of it, oftentimes trying and failing and trying again. Um, I do think that there is a, a percentage of what we learn that comes from the insights of others. And so uh, I've always felt as, a, uh, as someone who invests and advises in other companies that I feel like I get as much as I give um, and uh, just because I learned so much. Um, and, uh, and it's just like a sort of a, a part of a mix of my education. Um, and, I, and, and so in terms of developing you know, the skills. I think it's, 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 it's largely, it's largely through experience. And then, and I also, I learn a lot by writing, you know, it's when I synthesize the things that I go through, uh, it's, um, the, 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 the process of writing something down or doing a podcast or anything else that forces synthesis of experience. It makes you take very complex and dynamic situations you go through and convert them into simple ways for others to understand, which of course is also a way for you to understand and you to have some introspection and, and, uh, and relate to your own experience. You know, it's, sure. that's the funny thing for me is it's, um, there is a sense in the startup world, especially in the creative world in general, where whenever something doesn't go right, you just move on, just keep trying, just go to something else. Like don't look back, don't, don't get hung up. And in fact, I think that's kind of the the opposite, right? I mean, you you learn by like reflecting and kind of picking apart what happened and why, and and um, and if you don't do any sort of post mortem after anything, you 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 don't, you you almost lose like fifty percent of the point of doing it, which is just learning how to do the next thing better. How do you not get bogged down in that though? Because I think for a lot of people, they kind of go into that and and they just can't get back out of it, and they just end up being bogged down. How have you managed to be able to to still be able to reflect, still be able to to kind of do an autopsy over what's happened, but but be able at the same time to put it into perspective and be able to eventually move on? It's a good question because um, it is easy to get hard on yourself and to get bogged down. And listen, like as we wrap up our identity in the work that we do, everything that we don't do right, we take very personally and we struggle and we, we struggle with it. Um, so what do I do? I try, I'm trying to think of just examples where I just felt, felt like something did not go well or I moved too fast or uh you know, or I said something I wish I had not said, or I made a wrong decision. And um, I mean, part of it is you have to forgive yourself and recognize that it's a sunk cost at some point. And, um, and at that point, it will only hold you back to dwell on it. Um, I also like to remind myself that <laughs> you, know, you, you can't make great decisions unless you learn from bad decisions. And so it's, it's in some ways, it's, it's, part of what makes you better. And so it's, I do really try to look at things that way and say, hey, everything I screw up means that I'm going to make a better decision later, mm. so long as I process and face it. Um, and so that's like kind of maybe it's, you know, it's my way of rationalizing <laughs> my, uh, sure. my, yeah. my, er my errors, but uh, it, it certainly works for me. Scott, I want to go back to something that you said um, a couple of minutes ago, and you talked about, you know, 
trying to distinguish between um, the things that make uh, that make you feel busy and the things that make you feel utilized. And I was just curious, um, do you have like a specific, I don't know if it's like a, like a thought process or something for determining that for yourself? Hmm. Um, <laughs> this notion of like busy versus utilization and yeah. how do I know it's one, it's one yeah. or the other? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's think. It, I mean, utilization really comes down to challenge for me. And so, um, so we've all been in meetings or conversations where it's just like, okay, I'm not being pro I'm not being forced to process here or I leave and I feel like I, I, I just filled space. I mean, in some ways, when I talk about my last book, um, in 2010, a book called making ideas happen, mm -hmm. I, I've been on the, I've been on the road, you know, talking about that book for so many years that when I'm asked to talk about it now, I can almost, I, it's not challenging anymore, right? I, I, it's, it's, it's work, but it, and it's, keeps me busy, but, um, but it's not like forcing me to think anymore as much, right? And uh, whereas, of course, now I'm talking to you about a brand new book that I almost have never talked about before. It's actually, as you and I are talking right now, we're not, it's not even out yet. Yeah. <laughs> so this is challenging because I'm like, okay, how do I frame this? And what, what do I want to bring up when you ask me, um, you know, about my favorite points in endurance or whatever? So I think that um, it, it's really about, at the end of the day, are you tired because your time was, 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 was consumed? Or are you tired because you mentally had to um, think harder, uh, you know, and, and just stretch yourself and, 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 um, and you know, and, and maybe one of the tasks is having regrets. Like at the end of the day, you should always feel like, oh, did I do that well? Could I have done that better? Uh, and and that, that's maybe a good sign as opposed to like, oh, you know, just did my work and I don't even remember what I did. There was no friction, so I don't even remember it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I want to I go back to um, your book here for a second. And, you know, through it, you interviewed like a lot of founders, artists, executives, all sorts of different people. And I'm just curious, you know, in writing this book, was there something that really surprised you? You're like, oh, man, I wouldn't have thought about uh, thinking about this or doing this in the in the middle of a project or something that I'm working on. Yes. There were <laughs> there are many many Done things that, that surprised question. me. Um, again, where do I begin? Goodness, um, I think especially in the um, in some of the stuff around how teams optimize themselves, there were many counterintuitive um, things around the um, the. Let's see, uh, like for example process. You know, I, 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 I really did spend a lot of time learning and thinking about the benefits and the costs of process in a team. Um, for starters, if you have a very small startup or team or founders or whatever, the fact that everyone is fully aligned and, um, and is ambient, like everyone's working around each other and there's really no debates around where research, everyone's kind of aligned. There's this there, there isn't even a need for process in such a situation. Um, when you have the right people and everyone's in the same page, there are very few rules for structure. Um, and that's actually the benefit of being in a very early stage of a project is that you don't have to deal with process that gets people aligned, which just takes time, slows you down, and is, um, is, is in some ways administrative 
and creates um, politics and bureaucracy and everything else. However, when you grow and when you have a larger opportunity in front of you, um, you have different people with different hopes and beliefs and different opinions, and people have a misunderstanding of what the priorities are and how teams should be how time should be managed. And uh, and what I like to say is, you know, process in some ways is like the excretion of misalignments. So when you have people that aren't on the same page, you have to create a process in order to get them on the same page. And uh, so then the question is, okay, that's how companies are formed, and 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 that's how that's why you have departments and rules and systems and all this other stuff. And so when we say in a company like, oh, process is bad, no, process is good, um, and uh, and then. Uh, yet some of the greatest leaders are ones that kill processes, that consume time and get in the way of progress. So it's it was very interesting for me to, through this whole process, come out with, with a respect and disdain for process. Mm-hmm. And this realization that you can't necessarily rob people of their processes because it's what they use to get alignment and to manage their time and to measure themselves. And yet you also can't, you have to always be kind of iterating and, and killing process at the same time. So that was kind of one kind of area of interest that I tried to kind of pick apart in the book and understand. Um, I think also some of the stuff around um, culture and like building a team, you know, in the book, I also um, talked about the difference between hiring great talent and grafting great talent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to bring on someone wonderful into a team. But how do you actually make them stick? And in fact, counterintuitively, the better a team is, the stronger the immune system is that rejects new organs or new talent. And um, and so how do you hire someone great who comes in with strong opinions and a different background and, and graft them onto a team that works so well together like a well-oiled machine and has like a shared past? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I talk about the benefits of real-time communication, you know, empathy with what this new person on the team is going through, you know, systems for integrating them. Um, I also talk about some research, you know, for example, this woman named Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School studied hospitals and found that the um, top teams um, in terms of their, uh, you know, their just performance from a very like, you know, uh, objective set of measures in hospitals actually report more mistakes than low-performing teams. And the reason is because there's this notion of psychological safety, you know, and, and, um, and teams that are able to be candid and, um, and, and identify the things that aren't working, call out their mistakes, are higher performing. And, you know, which goes back to that question of how do you, how do you change a team? How do you optimize a team? How do you graft talent onto a team? A big part of it is having that culture where people can call out mistakes and challenge themselves when, when things aren't going well. So again, a lot about like culture, team, and and some of the uh, some of the pieces we sometimes overlook too quickly. Mm-hmm. So you know, in in your work with um, Behance and Adobe, and even with Ninety Nine U, um, I'm sure that you've seen uh, even in, <clears throat> in yourself or in other creatives. Um, I'm just curious, what are the habits that you've seen that help people execute on their creativity? Because a lot of people have ideas. Um, I don't think that's, um, in most cases, sometimes it is difficult. But 
what I've found is that most people have trouble executing on that. So what are the habits that you've seen help people execute on their creativity? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there are quite a few. I mean, certainly recognizing that you can't do it alone and that the role of your community plays a really, uh, uh, is, is a really key force in, in pushing you to execute. Um, the role of competition, for example, and seeing other, whether they're other writers or artists or entrepreneurs or other companies doing things or starting to execute things that you, you've been brewing for so long and you know you're the best at, it, oftentimes that is the impetus to act on, the own, on your own things, the, the things that you know you need to do. And so while we don't like to talk about the necessary force of competition and who likes competition, yet actually it sometimes is what serves as the impetus for us to act on the stuff we know we need to do, um, which is why as an investor, I actually like to invest in a, in, in, in a company that has a competitor because I think it keeps them on their toes and also helps validate the fact that there's a bigger enough space for um, opportunity. I think um, so that, so the force of comp community, whether it's competition, whether it's um, feedback, and obviously uh, if, if people are not looking at what our plans are and critiquing them, then we are in the dark. And uh, which goes to say that uh, maybe one of the biggest things creatives, creative leaders, entrepreneurs are, are, are not good at is soliciting critical feedback. Even though we say intellectually we want it, oftentimes we don't really, you know, psychologically. Who wants to hear that they're, you know, what, what someone doesn't like about what they're doing? Yet that information is gold because we have blind spots. The more passionate you are about the solution to a problem, the harder it is to see what you're missing. And so we need to actively, um, actively solicit that. Scott, you say in um, Tim Ferriss's book, you, you had a quote in uh, Tribe of Mentors. You said, um, great opportunities never have great opportunity in the subject line. Um, which is, by the way, a great quote. Um, kudos to you for that. Uh, <laughs> how, how have you been able to capitalize on opportunities, and how have you coached others to do the same? Well, I think that the, the point that I was making at Tim there is that um, why does everyone want to join something hot as opposed to join something cold and make it hot? Uh, why don't we join a team not for what it is, but for what we can make it become? It just seems like we humans love finding shortcuts. We love jumping on the rocket ships. Um, yet no one looks back at their greatest work in life and says, it's because I jumped on the logical headline-making company or opportunity at the time. Because that's not extraordinary. It's already known for that. Um, you're just a passenger uh, in such a case, you know, trying to grasp onto momentum that was created well before you were involved. What I think is truly extraordinary is when people uh, find something that is not hot, right? Um, look beyond the headline and have a vision, you know, feel like they have a, a unique contribution or insight that will make something extraordinary. And so um, now the challenge with that, of course, is that the opportunities that qualify for what I'm saying do not look great at the time. 
they may be a struggling company that doesn't have any fanfare or revenue. It may be an old company with a brand that's somewhat tattered and um, but could be reimagined. It could be an industry that has become somewhat uninteresting yet has uh, you know a potential to be revitalized. Um, that's what's impressive to me. And, uh, and that's something I always encourage myself to think about. And, um, you know, and the, the, the true leaders that are listening to us right now, they need to challenge themselves to be a little more visionary when it comes to what's possible rather than what's likely, you know, in an opportunity that they take. So I'm just curious, what have you learned or what are some of the things that you've uh, learned not to do um, to help? distinguish what is um, a potential, and obviously you can't know for certain um, what's going to be a great opportunity and what's not going to be, but what have you learned to do or not to do in your prep work for deciding whether or not to jump into an opportunity? Well, what I really try to do is, um, is focus on the fact that great, great experiences, at least in my life, have always come from working at the center of three things. What, what is genuinely interesting to me, um, the skills that I either have or could easily develop or possess, and opportunities that present themselves. And so whenever I have taken an opportunity that did not match my genuine interests or did not match my skills, um, it did not go well. But every time I find myself at the center of those three things, I feel like a labor of love that I take there will always pay off. Not necessarily how I would expect, but will always pay off. And so that's what we all need to do is, is, um, you know, is look for areas where, wow, like this is actually what I'm obsessed with, regardless of whether it's hot right now or whether it's um, a great paycheck. This is my genuine interest. And also these are the skills that I have that I can apply to it. And then if any opportunity comes up, regardless, again, of whether it's a, quote unquote, great opportunity in the headline, whether it's something that your friends and family will, will, will understand or not, all that set aside, if an opportunity comes up in the intersection of your skills and interests, you, you just got to take it because life is short. And I'm telling you, those things pay off. They just do. And you've got a couple of great graphics on, I think it's on your website, kind of illustrating a little bit about... Um about your process and then how you kind of look at that. So we'll definitely link to those in the show notes for sure. Cool. So Scott, just as uh, we're getting ready to wrap up here, one thing that I'm interested in is what are you most excited about for like the future of creativity? Well, I think that the future of creativity, I would say there's like two things that really excite me. You know, one is just making creativity and the tools themselves more accessible to more people. You know, this is my day job at Adobe. This is why I came back to Adobe. I believe that as labor becomes increasingly commoditized and automated, and we all have these questions about the future of work, you know, and jobs, and will people be out of jobs? Um, I actually think creativity is the saving grace here. Creativity is the most uniquely human trait we've got. Where does it come from? It comes from mistakes of the eye. It comes from childhood trauma. It comes from whatever else. Who knows where the source of creativity is? But the point is, is it doesn't come from algorithms. It doesn't come from machine learning. Creativity is human. And so if we can 
empower the next generation of students and workers to have what it takes to stand out, you know, in their lives at work, on social media or whatever. I mean, that to me is one of those critical skills, just like penmanship and writing and word processing. I think that creativity is a modern form of literacy. And so one thing that really excites me about the future of creativity is just putting it in the hands of more people and making sure that it becomes like a a way that we work and live. And it, it, it just, in some ways, gives humans something that we continually add value through um, as computers become more and more powerful. On the other end of the answer to your question, what excites me about the future of creativity, it's new mediums, like augmented reality, like voice interfaces. I think that, um, you know, just like the internet is a big deal these days. Yeah. Uh, and and the surface that we interact with on our phone every day, I actually do believe that augmented reality could be as big of an because I think that in in our physical world, everything coming to life and being informed and automated, uh, uh, animated rather, um, will be uh, extraordinarily empowering. And and uh, I don't think you'll ever go to most of the websites you go to today in an augmented reality world. They will. The information in those sites will come to life at your fingertips where and when you need it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one of the things I'm focused on with with my teams at Adobe is helping build products that will enable that to happen. Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk talks a lot about about what what augmented reality is like that's going to look like in the future and and some really cool ideas. I wanted to ask, uh, just touch on something that you said. You said that creativity is kind of becoming the lit- uh, like um literacy and creativity literacy is kind of becoming this thing for for students can you expand upon that a little bit because i think that's an interesting statement to make yeah i think that um i think that we we don't learn um design as a language in k through 12 education um you may take an art class or a woodworking class or something like that but we just treat the field of art and design as like you know, a hobby or an extracurricular activity. And yet we sit through class, you know, in those, in those grades, writing papers and learning how to write and read and everything else. And it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, think about, think about it this way. Computers can now dictate everything you say with almost 99 to 100% accuracy. Um, um, a lot of the stuff that we are learning now, you know, was stuff that humans could only do, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or even maybe 20 years ago, we are not learning the things, again, that are like uniquely human, that really differentiate what humans can do in this world, like design, like creatively express ideas. And so, I mean, you just for example, you know, take, you know, because it's me, I'll take one of my creative products like um, Adobe XD, which is our experience design tool where people can just kind of mock up whatever's in their head, can make like logic graphs, can make anything with just like very simple tools. And it's like, why, why shouldn't we teach that to K through 12? Like, why shouldn't um, any graduate of high school know how to design something that is in their mind's eye? That to me is a, a critical form of literacy in the sense that everyone needs to know it to communicate. And, um, and that, you know, that hasn't happened in our sort of traditional education system yet. Mm-hmm. What what is something that maybe the the average person can help um, encourage that that uh, that need for creative literacy? What's something 
that someone could do to encourage that in themselves and in other people? Well, I think um, I think we all need to learn how to design to some extent, and uh, and that's as easy as I mean, Adobe XD is a free tool, so anyone can download it. It's literally free, um, or whatever tool you choose. I just think it's important that people start to play. I mean, even if you're using PowerPoint or Keynote or something, it's um, it's uh, when you find yourself at work or with a team or with a nonprofit that you work with, and you want to show something rather than tell something, you know, challenge yourself to use the, the power of design and, and the visual language to make a case. Um, it's more, you'll, you'll, you'll find that a mock-up is worth a thousand meetings and, uh, and, and having the skills to do something like that and make something, you know, pushes everything you may be passionate about or want to make happen forward. Um, also just understanding design will help you communicate better, um, will help you work with other visual thinkers and designers you know, on teams that you may, be, you may find yourself on. It's just a critical skill set of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. How, how can, or what's one thing that someone can do to understand design better? Aside from just trying to do it, um, you know, I think watching other people do it, design is one of those fields where you learn by watching. When I talked to some of the best designers in the world, they didn't learn in design school. They learned by being an apprentice, being an intern, sitting next to a great designer and just watching him or her work. Mm-hmm. And so I, I encourage everyone to do that um, on Behance, you know, which is the company that I um, originally founded and now is part of Adobe. Um, we just launched a very popular new section of the entire product called live streaming. And it's for this exact purpose. We just found that people love watching other people create. Just like on Twitch, we watch other people in video games. Mm-hmm. And so you go to Behance and you go to live, and we have almost 24-7 live streaming of people around the world just creating. And it's amazing, actually. The average watch time of this video content, it, it like blew my mind, and I didn't even believe the stat at first, is over 80 minutes. So... People come across this and they just start, you know, they just kind of get mesmerized by someone super talented and how they express themselves visually. And I think it's part of the puzzle of uh, helping the world act and think this way. Yeah. And we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes so that it's easy for people to find as well. And Scott, just as um, just as we're finishing up, we always have a few questions that we love to ask all of our guests. And the first one is what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? Um, I think what is um, what is helping me both personally and professionally is uh, is I'm starting to keep a um, an action list uh, of things that, and I look at it every morning and but it's not a to do list mm-hmm. and it's not my like unread emails or anything else it's actually a different list of some of the longer term things that I want to like keep coming back to and I've noticed that long term things oftentimes get deprived of the attention they need in, in favor of short-term urgent things. And so I built kind of a daily practice of making sure that there's a period every day where I do look, take a glance at this list. Um, and it's helpful because it just makes sure that I keep some of these slow burn things moving forward. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, do you just have that written down on a piece of paper? Or do you use an app like Wonderlist or something? Like, what do you use? That. Yeah, I use Evernote for um, for this particular list. I actually do use Wonderlist for my 
tasks. Mm-hmm. But you know, as I said, I don't view these as tasks. I yeah. view them as sort of a, a trigger list for my mind. Gotcha. What advice would you give to someone who is eager to learn? It could be something new or just to be maybe developing something. What, would it, what advice would you give to somebody? Well, the, 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 the short two-letter two answer is do, you know, <laughs> as, as opposed to anything else. Um, I really, I am a firm believer that experiential education is the only form of education that um, really transforms our lives. And, uh, and I just, I mean, even compared to classroom education, it's just something about doing and having lived through things and picking up on all of the little signals that create instincts and pattern recognition and everything else. Um, but more importantly, what, what makes us passionate about something, just doing things. And so I, I just, whenever I have friends who are interested in something and are exploring and they're like, I want to read about it or whatever, I'm like, Dude, just do it, you know, <laughs> just do something, volunteer, spend time, whatever it is, you will not regret it. Why do you think that there's a resistance to like almost doing seems like the last option or we try to make it the last option versus like you were saying, like reading a book, you know, listening to a podcast, whatever it might be. Why do you think there's such a resistance to doing? That's, that's easy. Failure, you know, fear of failure. Um, we are all scared of whatever we attempt to do not working and um and as a result we uh you know we just hedge ourselves we pull back we sort of take you know we hesitate to take any sort of leap and um and you know nothing inhibits our experiential education more if you could have everybody learn one thing and it could be any literally anything what would that thing be i think it would be empathy not to say that you can easily learn empathy, but when it comes to succeeding in relationships, in leading a team, in building products for customers, and achieving that elusive product market fit when your customers are getting incredible amounts of value out of your product and telling their friends, frankly, it all comes from developing empathy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that that is uh, unfortunately a relatively rare trait how do you develop empathy or how did you go about developing empathy in yourself um by trying to make sure i understand struggles and um you know instead of trying to be intellectual about things and looking from afar instead of really being governed by what i am passionate about i actually try to get shoulder to shoulder with the people suffering the problem that I feel I want to solve. And this is both in my personal and professional life. I'm just always trying to look through someone else's eyes. And I find that that's a very good mechanism. And then our final question is, what are you learning right now? Right now, I think I'm learning how to uh, evolve culture within a very big company and, um, (laughs) and how to, how to, Evolve the way like product teams that have been in their products for many many years, if not more than a decade. You know how to how how to help those teams think about their products and their customers differently. Mm-hmm. Is there a process or something that you have for doing that, or is it just more of a feel thing? I think it's um, it's both. You know, there's a lot of feel, and then I also think that there's a 
process of challenging and of bringing designers into the center of a reimagination of something, um, empowering them to show rather than tell what a future could look like and getting alignment around that vision as opposed to forcing people to pursue it. I think it's all of the above. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. If people want to continue to learn from you, find the book, where's the best place for them to go to do that? Um, wow. Well, your easiest answer is Amazon. Uh, <laughs> but, there's, uh, but there's also some other stories. It's so funny. Now we like feel bad for Barnes & Noble. When at yeah, one point Bezos uh, kind of runs the world now. We used to hate Barnes & Noble because it would put the little mom and pop shops out. Now it's like, come on, like go to Barnes & Noble, buy it. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, so you know, any, any, and, and and listen more more than anything else, your your local bookstore. Um, I, I really do hope that people go to their local bookstores and pick this up. It will be there. Um, and um, but I uh, certainly Amazon's the easiest. And um, I hope that uh, folks take a look. I mean, the messy middle is not only a guide for this very volatile middle journey and how to endure and stick with it and how to optimize your way through it. Um, it's also meant to be a reference guide where you can kind of flip flip to the insight that you feel like you need at the right time in the right place and get that perspective, which I find sometimes makes all the difference. You just need like the advisor to talk to you for five minutes and give you another perspective on something. And then it kind of arms you with, um, with, uh, with some sort of artillery for the moment. And that really is the intention of this book. So I hope your I hope your listeners check it out. Yeah, definitely. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow. Man, that... Todd, I don't know what to say. What? We get asked all the time, like you and I, all the time. Like People come up to us and they say, you know, I want to start a podcast. I have an idea for a podcast. Um, Or, you know, I have an idea for a blog. Or I have an idea for a vlog. Or, you know, I have blah, blah, blah. I've got a book idea or whatever. And my standard response a lot of the time is don't do it. Like unless you're unless you understand how much time it's going to involve, don't do it because you're going to go crazy. And I think this book highlights that. One of the things that he he really um, we got into with him is a lot of the work um, that it took for him to to launch uh, Behance um, and, and kind of the process that they went through. As, uh, as he was launching that years ago and how it, it just kind of grew, but the work that it took, um, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, and I know we talk, we, we mentioned, we say, I, I say Gary's name all the time on the podcast. I get it. Hey, I just haven't drank the Kool-Aid yet. Yeah, it's okay. You don't have to drink it. It's in the, the cupboard. Kool-Aid. It's in the it's cupboard. It's in the cupboard. Um, I just haven't got there yet. But, but Gary talks all the time about how, you know, many times when you start a project, you need to be willing to invest five to ten years in that project until you really see fruit. And I think that, I think that when, you, when, I read, when I read The Messy Middle, what I see is that reality kind of coming to light where it's like, hey, there's all, like, you know, everybody likes John A. Cuff's two books, Start and Finish. Like, everybody likes those two books. Why? Because it's talking about a definite beginning and a definite end and how do we get to those two spots. This book is the challenging one that's in the middle where it's like, hey, there are going to be nights when you're going to stay up way late working on something that really is boring and you don't feel like doing it. There's going to be a lot of early mornings. And it's due tomorrow. And it's due tomorrow and there's early mornings and it's boring and it's all the stuff. You know, people talk about how on movie sets all the time, 
like actually shooting all of the, the parts that go into making one of the Avengers movies is terribly boring. Like it's green screens and it's they shoot something for three minutes and then it's another half hour until they shoot something again. And it's because they're set up and tear down and moving pieces. That's the messy middle because what happens at the end of it? Like when it's all put together and the music's in and all of the stuff, the CGI is all done. You get fantastic movies, but it's the middle part that's hard. Same thing where the middle part is hard when you're doing a podcast or when you're writing a book. All of those different things, if you're not willing to invest the time, I think Scott, really what his book's highlighting is, hey, it's messy and it's hard and nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it. They'll say things like, it's the grind, man. It's the grind. What does that mean practically? I think it's something you and I wrestle with all the time. Well, and I think it's something that we underestimate. Well, you totally too, do. Because, you know, we talk about, we talk about, you know, with it being the grind. And we talk a lot about it with, uh, with Kevin West, who's been a guest on the podcast, too. He's a mentor of ours. And just the idea that, um, and even we didn't even know what we were getting ourselves. No, we had no idea. Into. We thought we were going to get some microphones and just talk. And it's, it's so much more work than that but it's worth it 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 is worth it but it takes discipline it yeah. takes all of that and it's the yeah. it's the middle it's the grind that makes it worth it it's fun yeah it is fun like you and i uh, i will i will pull the curtain back so caleb and i every friday um our two days off are friday and saturday we work on sunday and uh friday saturday are a day off we sacrifice our entire friday we get together There's at a, least Friday. At least sometimes that doesn't include the, phone yeah. calls during that emails, week. That doesn't include texting. the work that we do individually. Like we just combine work right. on Friday. There's work throughout the rest of the week. Uh, right. We we're probably individually on our own putting in three, four, five hours um throughout the week doing just various things. And we give up an entire day off. Like we get like this like in the mornings, we get there about 8 o'clock in the morning at a local Starbucks. And usually we're done by 4, 4.30. That's, you know, I mean, that's a, they're full days. And it's a day off. And it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. I'm saying it's a fun time. Him and I get to hang out all day and, and everything. But, man, it's it's a grind and it's messy. Yep. And you got to do parts that are boring, like recording intros and outros. You've got to do the editing part that I do most of the time Saturday mornings. Um, Caleb's do listening through the finished episodes and doing show notes and, and, and all of that and scheduling and social media posts and all of those things. But at the end it's of it, reality. it, but at the end of it, we have a finished episode. And it's really kind of cool to be able to listen back and hear these awesome people who've done really cool things do that. So, you know, whenever I think of the messy middle Scott Belsky's book, I, I think of work and grind. What are, what, are, what does that mean to you? Um, phenomenal book love talking with him and by the way we didn't just talk about you know there was so much other things that went into this episode about you know his time at behance and then what it means to, to for him to transition to adobe and, and and everything he's doing with adobe and and in systems and creation and creativity and all these things phenomenal episode love getting to talk with him um definitely go and check out the book uh, the messy middle though definitely check that out don't forget to check out some of the episodes that we released previously this week in case you missed any of them as well and the best way to make sure you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our podcast on one of your 
whatever podcast player you use. Exactly. I finish your sentence for you. Because next week we are talking with Callie Murray, and oh my goodness, we have a phenomenal episode. She talks about building her own personal DIY MBA and really having her own experiences uh, about started, starting a company and then selling that company. And then and all then of a sudden going to work for somebody else. Starting all yeah. over again and talking about her experience doing that. And so you don't want to miss that episode. Subscribe to the podcast and you will definitely make sure that you will not miss that episode. Leave us a rating and write us a review on whatever podcast player you're using. Let us know what you would like to learn about. Let us know some of the things that we continue to improve as well. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. My name is Kayla Mason. And my name is Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.